Well, we're back into the series of Daniel. For some of those that are with us this morning that are just joining us, want to bring you in just briefly into the story of Daniel. What had happened was the Israelites went into exile, but it was prophesied that they would be pulled out of their promised land and removed. That didn't mean that every single Israelite But many of them, mostly leaders, the influential people in the nation, were removed by the nation of Babylon. And Daniel is one of those people that was brought out of the promised land, left Jerusalem, and went into Babylon. It was in the year 605, maybe 603, so some 600 years before Christ, when all this started to happen. And so Daniel is given some visions, he's given some dreams, and as we look at this, we want to recognize that God was doing something powerful, something big in the life of the nation of Israel. Now, to bring all of us back into the story, I want to bring up a chart. This will refresh some of your memories if you were with us, and that is back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, got a dream. But what he did was he wouldn't tell his people that would interpret dreams even the dream. And so Daniel was given from the Lord the very dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and then interpreted it. And what it was was a statue, and some of you may recall it was a very large statue, and at the head was gold, and then there was a chest of arms of silver. Notice the metals as you go down, then there's bronze, and then there's the final one that was iron and clay mixed together. Well, then in chapter 7, Daniel gets a vision, vision dreams. We're going to link some of that together. And this is a similar kind of dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. There was several animals. One was a lion. And we know today that even countries represent are represented by different animals. So like the United States, we think of the eagle, and you can think of Russia as the bear, right? There's different ways animals have come in. Well, what God gave Daniel was this vision, and so there was this lion with this wings, there were bear with three ribs, there was a leopard with four wings and four heads, and all of this is significant, and then there was this beast with iron teeth. Then chapter 8, we move into another vision that Daniel had, and it was revealing who these countries are. And so the first one was Babylon, and then Babylon would be replaced by Meda Persia, and then Meda Persia would be replaced by Greece, and then Greece would be replaced by Rome. And so then we pushed into chapter 9, because what had happened was Daniel was reflecting on these dreams, these visions, and thinking about Jeremiah and what Jeremiah had prophesied years early, earlier, he now was deeply troubled. He was troubled because he didn't understand what God was doing. And how many of us here have times in our lives, maybe you're in one now, and you're like, what is God doing? If it's not in your own life, what is God doing in my life? You might be saying, what is God doing in our country? Or what is God doing in the world? And what we're going to find out today is that Daniel's God, his view of God, 
was too small. So let me just ask you the question. How big is your God? How big is your view of God? As I was reflecting on Daniel, I have a library. I have lots of books in my library, and there's one small paperback. I hadn't read it for over 30 years. And the title of it is, Your God is Too Small. And what the author talks about is how we create God in our image. (laughs) We make God smaller than he is. We make him in a way that keeps him in a box. And what Daniel finds out, we're going to find out, you can't do that with God. He's not some nice grandfather in heaven. He's not some dictator. He's not some God that created the earth and just let everything happen. We're going to find out this God is a big God. Now, we left off in Daniel chapter 9. We intentionally left off the last few verses of Daniel chapter 9. So this morning, we're going to go back into chapter 9. I want you to imagine Daniel. He's given these visions, these dreams. All this is happening, but he's distressed over it. Over and over, we're told that he's in anguish because he's confused. And we're going to find out why he's confused and what God is saying to him. If you have your Bible, if you have a device, we're looking at prophetic literature. We're looking at apocalyptic literature. We are looking at God revealing the future to the nation of Israel hundreds of years before it happened. And because that's a fact, many people in our world today want to keep dating Daniel earlier and earlier, meaning later and later in time, instead of a 6th century prophet, a 7th century prophet, they want to move him to a 2nd century because nobody could know the details that he knows Is your God too small? If you have your Bible, a device, Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. If you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand? I want to read verses 20 to 27. Daniel is saying, while I was speaking and praying, in the earlier part of chapter 9 he was praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I came to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision." Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understands from the time the word goes out 
to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come and will destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Father, we're human. We're finite and we're weak and we're frail. And we're so prone because of our limitations to limit you. But God, we're asking by the power of your spirit, break into our lives. Break in. Give us a glimpse of how great, how powerful how amazing you are and that you're not to be trifled with. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may grab a seat. Well, there's so much in these few verses and we want to dive in and and look at, at these. What we begin to see, and here's my first point, is that God further reveals the mystery of his grand plan. God is revealing the mystery he continued to reveal in these dreams, these visions that Daniel was getting, that Nebuchadnezzar had, the mystery of his grand plan. And his plan is big. It's it's magnificent. And so it brings you and me into this unimaginable future. And I say it that way because we cannot comprehend all that God wants to do. Now, remember Daniel probably in 605 B.C., he was ripped out of everything he knew. The foods that he liked, the home that he lived in, the music that he listened to, the culture that he enjoyed, all of that was removed as he was exiled into Babylon. But he is now, at this time in chapter 9, an older man. Because now we're in about 539 B.C. So some 60 years have passed. And Daniel, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, he's now under Persian rule. He's now under this Persian rule. Babylon is already gone. And that was an amazing thing because they were a powerful nation. So Daniel was reading the prophet Jeremiah. He was reading the prophet Jeremiah because Jeremiah had prophesied that Israel would be removed from the promised land and brought into exile. They would be brought into bondage. Now, Jeremiah, and this is important as you read your Bible, the Bible is written such that the Torah... Don't want to throw anybody here. The Torah, I'm referring to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, 
Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books, the Torah, were written by Moses. The prophets would read the Torah, and God would never contradict himself, but he would be giving to the prophets out of what Moses said. It's very important that we grab hold of this, is that the prophets were bridging Moses to the future. So they read Moses and would look at what God was saying about the future, the prophetic. Now I use the word prophetic, but I also want to use the word apocalyptic. I know those aren't words we use in everyday language. So prophetic, what we're talking about today, is not only truth-telling, but it's God foretelling the future. He's reviewing, revealing the mysteries of the future. On top of the prophetic is this other category of writing where you have imagery, strong imagery, and we've seen that. So we get this big statue in Daniel chapter 2, and the head is gold, and, and the imagery is big and it's bold. And what happens in apocalyptic literature is that these pictures get built on top of each other and they don't always make sense. And so you'll get artists trying to build something where, you know, let, let's take something we're all familiar with, the lion and the lamb. So Jesus is pictured as a lion and a lamb. And so what do we try to do? We try to put a lion with a lamb and pair them up nicely, right? They're, like they're partnered. But the lion is the lamb, and the lamb is the lion. So what apocalyptic does is blurs these pictures to try to give you an idea of how awesome this God is with pictures that we can hardly comprehend. And that's what's going on with Daniel that's creating this anguish. So going back to Deuteronomy, written by Moses in Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, Moses said this. He said, after I die, you are sure, meaning Israel, you Israel, are going to become corrupt and to turn from the way God had commanded you. In the days to come, so this is Moses, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, he's prophesying and saying, in days to come, disaster will fall on you because of the evil in the sight of the Lord and arouse his anger by what your hands have made. So Jeremiah, now Moses wrote in 1400 BC, I'm going to give round dates, Jeremiah, writing around 650 B.C., so 1400, you need to go forward, let's say, 750 years. Jeremiah's reading Moses, knowing that they were going to corrupt or, or uh, abandon the Lord, turn and embrace their sin. Jeremiah now is given more. And this is what Daniel's reading. So in Jeremiah chapter 25, Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have listened to my words, I have summoned my servant. Because you have not listened to my words. Because Israel had not obeyed. Because they went their own way. Now, this is sounding a lot like Christians in America. 
They just do whatever they want to do. They live however they want to live. And God is saying back to Israel, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon, and listen to these words, my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was a cruel king. He was brutal. He was a tyrant. And God calls him my servant. You know why? Because he's going to use him to discipline his people. So if you read the book of Habakkuk, I mean, Habakkuk is stunned. He's saying, God, you know, your people, Israel, we're bad. But the Babylonians, (laughs) they're a hundred times worse. How could you be using them? But Jeremiah had prophesied that God was going to use Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And then he said, Israel, you will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So, in 605 BC, Babylon came and started conquering Israel. They were stopped outside of Jerusalem. So then, the temple was still intact. But in 586, so from 605 BC, you got to go down a couple more years to 586, the temple is now destroyed. Jerusalem is in ruins. Daniel is in Babylon, and the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied is almost over. But here's what happened. Jeremiah said that you're going to go back into the land, and there's going to be blessing. But Jeremiah didn't make clear when all that was going to happen. So with these visions of these other nations coming in, like Persia, like Greece, like Rome, they were cruel nations. They destroyed people. Babylon was a cakewalk. And Daniel now is in anxious mode. He's like, God, what are you doing? So here's where it starts impacting our lives. We are a lot like Daniel. We tend to assume that if God is in control, our lives should run smoothly. I can't be alone in this. Like, give me an amen. Shake your head. Say something. Let me know, right? I mean, am I the only one that if I'm like God's in control of my life and the world, then things should run smoothly in my life? I just kind of assume these kind of things. And that's how Daniel was. But God is saying, Daniel, that's not what's going to happen. And this is why he was troubled. So let's dive in. We get this in verse 24, the 77s, the mystery of the 77s, right? So Daniel is told there's going to be 77s. Now, some of us are not as familiar with the Old Testament. I understand that. But sevens were big because you had the Sabbath every seven days. That's just worth pausing for a moment. No other ancient culture in the world would say, stop working and take a day of rest. So the sevens are significant. 
But seven is also symbolic. And the sevens also point to God and infinity because it's God that's giving us the Sabbath rest. But it gets better. You got the 77s, I put in there 49 years. Almost all Bible teachers, theologians, students of the word agree that what Daniel's talking about are seven, seven years, not days, but years. So we can get seven sevens as seven, seven years or 49 years. That becomes significant. Because the 49 years, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, is the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is every 49, really every 50 years, so after 49 years, all your debts are canceled. All the land goes back to the original owners. All of this is blessing. So when we read Daniel, we also have to be reading our Old Testament, recognizing that Daniel was reading Moses as well and recognizing the year of Jubilee, recognizing the Sabbath, that these things are linked. But then he starts tying in the 62 sevens, and that's 434 years. And then we get a one seven. So he lays this out in verse 24, and this is all wrapped up into mystery. So you got one seven, or seven sevens, 49 years, 62 sevens, which comes to 434 years, and then you've got the one seven. And that's how Gabriel breaks it out for Daniel. Now, we love to be very detailed to the moment in years. Now, without discounting any prophetic words of Daniel, I don't think that he's concerned just about the years. Because if you're concerned just about the years and the dates, then you're going to miss the year of Jubilee and all the significance of Jubilee. If you're concerned only about dates, then you're going to try to line things up And now you're going to have challenges with Jewish calendars, Gregorian calendars. You're going to have to convert it to days because the Jewish year was 360 days. Our mindset, because we have a scientific one, knows, we all know this, I hope you all know this, there's not 360 days in a year, is there? How many are there? 365, but because it's a little bit more, you now have to add a leap year. So they got to convert this to days, and then they got to figure all this out. But then when you get to the year zero, right, you got 500 BC, 400 BC, eventually you get down to zero. The Jews didn't count zero, so you got to skip a year. Don't count that in. And so when you start setting dates, let me tell you, you are going to have a lot of fun. Now, I'm not opposed to God uh, or or to theologians and Bible teachers and, and all us Bible students to try to get this nailed down to an exact date, but I'm telling you, there's so much disagreement out there. And I just wonder, I just wonder if we get so fixated on the wrong thing. Not that these aren't important, 
But what's really important is what God's doing in the big scheme of things. So as we look at this, we've got the mystery. And in verse 24, he starts unpacking what all these sevens mean. So very quickly in verse 24, he says that all these 77s is God's going to do this. He's going to put or finish transgressions. He's going to put an end to sin. Now you and I know when the transgressions were going to be finished. We know when God was going to put an end to sin. It starts getting wrapped up in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? So 77s all of a sudden are bigger than just numbers. They're bigger than dates. They're bigger than you can imagine because God is doing something huge to atone for wickedness. When did atonement take place? At the cross of Jesus Christ to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's what Jesus did. To seal up vision and prophecy, God was through his son saying, I am bringing an end to all these things and to anoint the most holy place. Now you and I know that Jesus did all this, but we also know we continue in sin. So did he finish all sin? Is it all wrapped up just the way we would like? We would say, well, yes and no. Yes, in that Jesus, his finished work on the cross, completed everything and dealt with our sin and removed our guilt and our shame. Think of that. You can walk out of here this morning freed from all those silly things you did as a child, those foolish things you did as a teen, those things you're embarrassed to tell anybody, those thoughts that are lurking in your head that if anyone knew would bring shame on you. But you still have them. So we know that something bigger is happening too. Now, going back to the 77s, isn't it amazing that we can think of Jubilee, but then he multiplies that even more to just magnify this number so powerfully. And so this is what God is doing. These are the purposes of the 77s. That's how it's written in Hebrew. So we begin to see all of this. Or... As it comes into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has for those who love him. There is an unimaginable future. And Daniel, 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 the one who so powerfully interpreted dreams. Daniel, the one who was in the lion's den that we read about. Daniel, the one who stood strong against the kings and the rulers. Daniel, how could you settle for something so small as just returning to the promised land? As powerful as that is, and I'm not trying to diminish it, God's plan was not that they would just be back in the land and blessed. God was doing something deeply 
spiritual. You know what I love about Box Valley Church? When I sit and talk with people in our body that are older than me, they now see more clearly than ever what really matters. They've lived enough life as they pray for their great-grandchildren, as they pray for their grandchildren, it's not much about physical things. I'll tell you what they're praying for. That their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their children would walk with Jesus Christ all the days of their lives. The things that really matter. Because when you get older, you realize the brevity of life. Well, Let's look at verse 25. Gabriel saying, Now Daniel, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Let's be really clear. From the time the word goes out. So he's under Persian rule and Cyrus, a servant of the Lord, starts sending the exiles back to Israel. Isn't that powerful? So the word that goes out, I think, is Cyrus and then other rulers that come after him because there's four times it's decreed, send the people back, send them back to their home, send them back to Jerusalem, send them back to Israel. And I could give you all these dates, but I don't want us to get hung up on dates. But then he says, from the time the word goes out, the first word that went out was in 538 B.C. Under Cyrus, they start heading back until the anointed one. See, I circled the anointed one. The ruler comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. That is a total of 69 weeks. And what we begin to see is that Daniel is getting a vision that there's going to be this promised Messiah, the anointed one, that as we read this, we begin to see better and more clearly in hindsight than Daniel could see in looking forward, there's the promise of the Messiah. Then in 26, the first part of it, after the 62 sevens, So we have the seven sevens and then the 62 sevens. After the 62 sevens, it says the anointed one will be cut off. He will be put to death. Daniel is recognizing that this one, this Messiah, this promised one is going to die. Now, does he understand the crucifixion and all? I don't know all that Daniel understood. But when you read verse 24, that there's going to be an end to transgression, there's going to be an end to sin, something powerful is going on. This is no ordinary anointed one. Are you seeing how big this is getting? That this has to be something powerful to satisfy a holy God with all the sin of the world takes a God-man. And that's what Daniel's prophesying. And this is so big And it's overwhelming to think about it. The second part of 26, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Wait a minute. 
We're now down the road. The anointed one has come. And what we do know is that Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed in 586. We know by secular historians and biblical story that in 516, 70 years later, there's a new temple and the city's rebuilt. And the people are back in the land. I think what this verse is talking about is that again, the temple would be destroyed. And we know it happened, don't we? In 70 AD, Jesus was crucified. I take the date of 30 AD, 40 years after Jesus, the temple was destroyed. Daniel is prophesying all of this. You can see why secular historians say there's no way someone could know this. Well, you can't know it apart from a God who reveals it. Verse 27, the most difficult verse maybe in the whole Bible, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Now the he at the beginning, I circled it because who is this he? Is it the anointed one? Or as a large swath of evangelicals would say, not the largest swath, but a large group would say that this is the Antichrist. But maybe it's the same one that we're reading about, the anointed one or the ruler that's mentioned in verse 25 and 26. If it's the anointed one, Jesus, the ruler, then what is he talking about? The new covenant. He's establishing the new covenant. And he's going to destroy the temple because he is the temple. And that's how he reveals himself. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up because he's the new temple. But others take the he as the antichrist. Could be. Because Daniel is also looking way beyond this moment in history of the first century. He's also looking all the way to the wars and rumors of wars. Now, I don't want to go too much deeper today because chapter 10 and chapter 11 and chapter 12 is going to take us deeper into this. So come back. Let's dive deeper into the study of Daniel. But Here's what I want to close with today. God loves his people and gives great hope. God loves his people and gives great hope. This was not written just to satisfy, satisfy our curiosity about the prophetic. God gave it to the people of Israel to encourage them for difficult times, to strengthen them when life was going to get really hard, and it was going to get really hard under the Greeks, under the Romans, and could we say in the 21st century? So it's written to encourage us that this world is in trouble. There is Antichrist, plural, and there is the Antichrist to come. 
as we talked about when I taught the book of Revelation. But I want to talk about this God who cares. Right out of what we just studied, there's three things I want to walk away with. God cares. He listens. We didn't look at it tightly, but remember Daniel was in prayer in verse 20, and it says that while I was still in prayer, God sent with swiftness Gabriel. God is listening to your prayers. One of our takeaways is that we need to be a praying people. Now, with that said, we are just a week plus away from the Lenten season. I want to ask you to do two things. Two things. The first is this. I want us to take Lent seriously. Not that you haven't, but I think we're entering a season in our country and in the world where we need to get right with God in fresh ways. And Lent is a great time to do it. We're going to have an Ash Wednesday service. Ashes are a picture of our frailty, our humanity. Regardless of what many think, it's not a Catholic thing. The church has been doing this long before the Catholic church became Catholic. It's a time where we prepare our hearts. It's a time to connect. I don't want you to trip into Ash Wednesday because we're going to call the body to fast and say, oh, what am I going to fast? I want you to start thinking about what is it that may be getting in the way between me and God, and if I just laid it aside for 40 days, I could connect more with God. People often fast from food. Maybe they'll fast one meal a week or one meal a day. I'm not going to eat lunch or I'm not going to eat sweets. I'm not going to do something. Maybe social media. We're going to set it up into four different ways, different things. But we're calling the body to fast. To sit with God. Because God listens. Here's the second thing I want to ask. I would ask that every one of you choose one Sunday to come up to the prayer life team and ask them to just pray over you. Maybe you come as a couple. Maybe you come as an individual. But every one of us, over the next 40 days, come up and ask someone on the prayer life team to pray over you. You don't even have to reveal what you want, but maybe God has said, hey, ask God to give me strength for this fast. Ask God to carry me along because I want to grow. I want to get closer to God. Well, God explains. God owes us nothing, but God explains. Gabriel instructed Daniel. He gave him insight. You know what Jesus said to us? He said, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. Slaves do not know the master's business, but friends do. God listens and he wants to open up what he's doing in your life and in our lives, Fox Valley Church. Let's make this a powerful moment in Fox Valley Church, and then God acts. 
bigger than the promised land. God is so big. The Greeks come in, and the Greeks, they had their pantheon of gods. The Romans come in, they have their pantheon of gods. Americans come in, they have their pantheon of gods. But can I tell you something? The Greeks, the Romans, and the Americans, all their gods are controlled and contained in this puny universe. You and I worship a God that transcends the universe. All universes. All that God has created. He stands outside of it, and we worship him. And it's through Jesus Christ. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper. And Jesus said these powerful words. He said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He is our awesome God. If you don't have the elements, if you didn't receive them when you came in, raise your hand and the servers will get them to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the church at Corinth was instructed how to take the Lord's Supper. Don't take it flippantly. If there's sin in your life that you're not repenting of and not turning away from, don't take the Lord's Supper until you deal with your own heart. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ, don't take the Lord's Supper. It's a time to reflect. And then Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, I want you to know what I did that I conquered sin, I conquered death, I removed guilt and I removed shame. He wants you to know who you are in him. You are a child of his. In remembrance of him is a reminder. You are a daughter of the king. You have been bought with a price. You are a son of the king. You have been bought with a price. You have been adopted into his family. You are not who you were. You are a new creation in Christ. Do this in remembrance of him. And then he tells us, because of him, where we're going. We're going to spend eternity with him in the new earth and the new heavens. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him. Do you love him? How big is your God? On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He blessed it. And he said, this is my body. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. That same night, he took the cup. a cup that he used to establish the new covenant. Hopefully you can get yours open easier than I can get mine. Well, now I'm spilling it. On the night that he was betrayed, 
he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this was to establish a new covenant. A reference to Daniel 9.27? Perhaps. A way to remove sin? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He said, as often as you drink this, do it again in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Father, you are so big. You are so great. You are so powerful. Would you expand our minds, grow our imaginations, that you're not a God to be trifled with, that you are big, you're powerful, you're infinite, and you're bringing us home. You're bringing us into your place, into your very presence, the presence of your Son, who is fully God and fully man for all eternity. Now that is a future. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.